You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Racha. This is Standing in Two Worlds. I'm Aprom Kivalevich, and I'm here with Dr. Sam Juni. And it's a little bit late in your Shalom, Dr. Sam. Thanks for accommodating us. Um, and as late as it is, uh, I know that there's a, an issue that, that means a lot to you, and that is the mental health of everyone in, of this planet. And specifically, I think over the last seven or eight months, um, we've all been dealing with COVID-19 and we've been trying to keep safe. And clearly the havoc that it has wrought on our personal life and our fears of what will be uh, has bred in many of us, let's say it clearly, tremendous anxiety. Uh, tremendous anxiety about how we're going to handle it, how we're going to get to the grocery store this week? How are we going to deal with uh, financial losses uh, that are, are piling up already? So this has been, uh, the globe has been uh, plunged into anxiety, if you will. Somehow, along with that anxiety, and maybe it isn't such a secret, there's also been unleashed um, a, a, a forces that maybe had to do with social justice in some places, but in many places, there was reactions to the way the government was handling things. And they have not all been peaceful. There have been, especially we have seen a lot of uh, publicity in the Jewish world, that there's been pushback, especially here in America, in the Northeast, uh, in New York specifically, towards uh, the sanctions and injunctions and, and, and the directives of, of health officials and the governor and the mayor, and just recently, uh, you might have read about it, there was actually violence that, that has occurred, uh, people being attacked, people being hit. Um, and, and even in the outside, of course, of the religious world, there's also been, in the, in the, in the, in the political campaigns that are uh, in, in the United States, also outbreaks of violence, which I think you probably have to see as somehow connected to the general anxiety that is really coding the United States and the planet. And I know that you have written about this. Uh, many of these works are things that you wrote about um, 25, 30 years ago. And I think that they uh, still burn very brightly within you, uh, especially many of the ideas that you formulated there. So maybe you can help us. I'm going to sit back and listen to, you can give us a, a perspective on what's going on, this anxiety, and how this, this strange way of coping has occurred. So take it away, Dr. J. Okay, glad to be here again. And I'll be sure to um, try to do some justice to this topic. Okay, so let me just say, as you observed, Rabbi, this is probably not a, um, an era of coincidences. Okay, so you have the Black Lives Matter, you have COVID coming around, and the perspective um, from the from community, you have the um, um, massive pushback against Cuomo, against Gamzu in Israel, um, the fact that the uh, Haredi community feels maligned and feels uh, lambasted for not wearing masks, and then you have the mask burnings. Um, you have the huge anti-Netanyahu protests, which are basically politically oriented, happening at the same time that COVID is going on. It's not a coincidence. So what I want to talk about is 
a branch of ego psychology, which is called defense mechanism theory, which has been like a playground of mine for many years, especially in my dealing with patients that are neurotically disturbed, not those that are more disturbed than that. And I just want to give some perspective here. So um, the way defense mechanism theory understands personality is that the um, main goal in organizing a personality by the ego, ego is a Latin word for me, for uh, not, not you, for you, for I, the I, the ich, the anoichi, that the main driving force is to avoid anxiety, to avoid feeling threatened. And essentially what the ego does is it does a lot of maneuvering, dancing, um, turning things around to make sure that you do not get anxious. And the main weapon that it has is something called the defense mechanism. The defense mechanism is a reaction that the ego has, and it's essentially one of distortion. What I'm trying to say is that you might assume that one of the main sheifas of a person's personality is to be true to something, to be true to themselves, true to their ideas, true to their feelings, and that's not the case. The main purpose of the ego is to make sure that you don't feel anxious, and it employs various mechanisms which usually involve distortions or falsifications of what you might feel, what you might think, what you might remember, because the ultimate purpose as far as this perspective is, is not that you be true and faithful to some idea, just that you don't feel anxious. And almost anything is game in this perspective. And again, we're dealing over here not with psychotics. So simply defined, we're not dealing with people who hallucinate, who basically distort and say, this is not what I'm seeing, or I'm seeing something that's not there. That's a different portion that requires some severe um, treatments and medication. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who are in the normal realm, which includes neurosis. Neurosis means people who are pushed around by fears of anxiety, by memories, by experiences they, they've had that have hurt them or have threatened them and are devoting their life so that they don't get into trouble again. Okay, so defense mechanisms, essentially what they do is they play havoc with memories, they play havoc with feelings, and they play havoc with thoughts, meaning that they'll take these things and turn them on end and use them in a way so that you don't become anxious or you or you, you stave off or you minimize as much anxiety as is possible. So let me give some concrete examples and then we'll get beyond there. There is one concrete example um, from the Gemara, right? Which means essentially when you uh, tend to want to insult someone or put someone down, you generally will, will pick on a characteristic which makes you feel uncomfortable about yourself. And what you do is you pin it on the other person. And by pinning it on the other person, you somehow manage to, dis, um, to distance yourself from that very aspect of yourself. It's almost like saying, no, it's not me, it's him. It's these guys, okay? And that's classically, it's called projection. Um, let me give you some cute examples, okay? I remember when I taught, I taught at NYU, which is the heartland of the village. And I remember years ago, um, this is probably in the early 1980s, that um, we were trying to get some people in to interview who were like radicals of sorts. And I chanced upon this group who's um, had this vocation of going below the at the west side of Manhattan, at what used to, the West High Highway existed then, it was being dissembled, 
and they would go underneath the West Side Highway, which was a known ha- hangout for gay, gay fellows, and they would go there with tire irons and crack skulls every night. That was their preoccupation. And my initial response was, these are people who are very uncomfortable with their own homosexuality. And the way they're dealing with it is by going out there and tzetzing people's heads, which is their ego trying to convince themselves that they don't have these feelings at all. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a, along the order of Shakespeare saying, like, thou dost protest too much. When okay. somebody's very excited about something, I mean, I remember um, also so there was... Yes. So, again, would you say... Based on on this, the call place of my place, which uh, would indicate that many of the um, protests that we know are very common in Eretz Yisrael, there used to be the protests against Shabbos or the the who scream preitzos at the top of their lungs uh, yes. to people who come in. Does that would that also indicate uh, like again preitzos at the top of the lungs or people who are who are who make it their ultimate vocation? To uh, like on on these websites to find molesters and things like that, the um, uh, failed Messiah and, and and all these other sites. Would you say their 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 ultra preoccupation with either uh, sexual offenders or with screaming preachers shows there's something a little bit off in their own uh, comfortability with their own sexuality? And how would you relate that to people who are screaming Shabbos, which was of course a very okay. common thing? A very good question. So I can tell you that clinically I know the answer, that people who scream preachers or go on protests are not necessarily disavowing part of themselves. They could have a genuine feeling about this. People who go to the extreme, there is no doubt, and I know that clinically because some of them wind up being my patients, there is no doubt that these are people who have severe problems. I can tell you that at the forefront of vigilante groups, among young, let's say, Young um, 19 or 20 year olds are those who have a very good chance or have a much higher chance than others who themselves becoming part of the group they protest against. Okay, and I've seen that happen time and time again. I want to give you just two cute examples of that and we'll move on. The normals, in other words, the difference, in other words, someone who screams at someone. It's the extremeness, somebody who goes out to an extreme like people who are vigilantes and go hunt on people and persecute them for violating various kinds of issues. These guys have problems, or these women have problems in the same area. I'll give you a, a, a really benign example. A 94-year-old lady who travels one and a half hours from Manhattan to Queens to protest in front of an X-rated theater, okay? In the name of some kind of religious group. She has problems, Somebody on the block who protests, who has young kids, doesn't necessarily, may have problems too. Okay. I mean, he might. But somebody who goes that way, and I have to give you another cute one, okay? I used to have somebody working with me. I worked as an internship for New York City before I got my professor job, okay? And I remember once borrowing a newspaper from this guy. His name was Eliezer, a yeshiva guy. I borrowed a newspaper, and it's all cut out. I mean, there are pages and pages all cut I said... Eliezer, what's going on? He says, let me tell you something, okay? I have problems with Shmiris and I am. It's terrible what's going on over here. So what I do before I read the newspaper is I cut out all the pictures of women, okay? So he spends about 40 minutes of that, of his breakfast time, cutting out pictures of women, and then he can read the the, the newspaper in peace, okay? There's no Shiloh. This guy has some real bad hangups about these pictures, and he deals with it by cutting them out. But as he's cutting them out, he's having the thrill of his life. 
Okay, that's projection. That's one way of dealing with things. And I would say, let's say, Haredi people who are annoyed with with them being told to put on masks. Okay, I can get that. But then when you go ahead and you start burning the masks, give me a break. Okay, I've known, I, I remember when they were burning the cell phones. I've known guys who bought cell phones to burn them. New, you know, there's too much of it. You have a cell phone, you want to burn it because you're a chassi of a certain rebbe, go ahead and do it. But to go to an extreme, something is going on there. And basically all defense mechanisms are recognized by their extremeness. In other words, it's not just a reaction or a memory, it's intense. There's too much going on there. So projection is a great way of dealing with things. And I think a lot of it is going on these days with Black Lives Matter, the intensity that comes out there, it's not commensurate. When you look at the protests in Israel, you can have 20,000, 25,000 people in front of Netanyahu's house on, on Jerusalem night. What are you doing? What are you doing? And you're taking the danger, the cops beat you up. There's a significant danger of catching corona there because people don't social distance, they don't wear masks. There is more here than just protesting. If you want to protest and write a letter to the Jerusalem Post or organize a, a, a group in your area to vote against them in an election, there's one thing. There's just too much going on there. Okay, so, so that, that's one kind of mahalach, and I think it informs a lot of what's going so on. So can you, can you speculate as to what you think is being projected? I mean, when we talk again, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement here, that in many, many of the cities where the protests occurred, it was downplayed by the media. I myself do not know what the percentage was. I've heard various numbers, 7, 10, 15% of those protests became violent. But even if it's 7%, uh, of the protests become violent and you burn a house or you break into uh, into a, uh, a store, robbing and looting and burning, what, what could be, in your mind, what's being projected? I mean, what, 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 based on what you're saying, you know, obviously on record it is, the system is, let's say, whether it's true or not, that America is racist, it's been racist, people have to stop uh, persecuting African Americans, policemen have to start uh, have to start taking in their their uh, repressing their their use of force. But if you're right that this is over, this is being overdone. What aspect is it that they are exhibiting? What is it that they are trying? What are they uh, doing then? Because when so it comes I, I feel, in, in your yes. muscle in your muscle of, of, of Eliezer, we know that basically what was going on was is that he actually was dealing with the enjoyment that he had over these little looks that he was getting of these women in the paper, but he could tell himself that he was this great cleaner-up of the paper, right? This is really what you're saying, I, I yeah. believe, right? Okay. I, I'm not sure that could relate to the violence uh, that, that happened in, in those areas. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what it was that was being released or what was being redirected. Okay, so I, I'll tell you, I can't comment so much. I am not enough of a black person to um, really get a good sense of what it feels like to live with all that oppression and all the racism that's there. But I do feel very comfortable talking about the non-blacks who are part of these protests, and in some cases, actually, those who spearhead the protests, okay? Something is going on there, which just putting two and two together, not knowing them personally, and I don't know people from there because I've left the United States before these protests really started rolling. And unfortunately, I've been unable to fly back 
to do my patient roles because of COVID. So I don't know them on a personal. If I were there, I'm sure I'd get some of them as diagnostic patients because some of them look pretty disturbed. But what I can just conjecture is that something that's driving them is coming from the very identification with the oppressive powers. In other words, they feel somehow that they themselves are guilty of this kind of um, either oppression or hate or anger towards Blacks, and they're trying to um, expiate themselves to themselves to not feel bad about it by acting out in an extreme fashion. Like I've seen some statistics that the major instigators of the violence at some of the BLM protests were not black people. They were organizers. And in fact, that the police departments had them pegged from where they were outside the community coming in to ferment things. So I can't say exactly, but I'm sure that they definitely are manifesting some kind of projection here. As far as the black population is concerned, I don't know. It's possible that it's just totally straightforward. Like I've been feeling oppressed. I can't get jobs. I can't get um, apartments. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I can't speak. Like I don't have enough of a pulse of the black community at this point who are participating in these protests. Um, but if you, would, want, if you would say, yeah. when we when I mentioned before about uh, the violence of, of, of that used to occur, although it's not in the same league, uh, people who would throw rocks and stones at cars that were coming in their neighborhood, um, you would say since it's basically their neighborhood anyway, it isn't really an overreaction, is it? Um, I, I define these things based on what's normative. And what often happens is that normative is not a very robust construct. And that was if you live in the, I remember, okay, my first cousin, okay, I visited them. They live in Gaula, right? So I'm there on Shabbos. They are Hasidim, they're Haredim, the works. And the eight year old says, let's open up them. Like after 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 lunch, he wants to go to Rehov Barilan so he can scream Nazim on the police. He's an eight-year-old. He has no idea who the police are, what they're doing there, what Nazim even means. But that's normative. That kid was not a disturbed kid. He grew up to be a fine color guy who's fairly balanced, who doesn't scream, scream Nazim at anybody then at all. But it's normative. That's what they do. So I would say throwing I have had um not rocks. Thank God. But when I've been to the Meisharim, because of, I don't dress the right way and because I may be walking with Esther or whatever, I've had bags of, of sludge thrown at me. Okay? I've had teenagers threaten me and I've stopped to talk to them in Yiddish. They're not disturbed. They're not disturbed at all. This is normative. You see these guys, and I'd say the guys who are yelling at the cops now for pushing them around with um, social distancing are not necessarily disturbed. I think those that actually go and get into a fight with a cop who actually throw a bottle on a cop person to person, they know they're going to get beat up and have like the hell knocked out of them. There is something wrong with them. They are extreme, but no, no, I wouldn't call them extreme because normatively they're behaving in what's considered acceptable. It's when you, when you do something to the extreme that belies the um, psychological authenticity. That's the general rule. Let, let, let me just. I don't, know, I don't know what I would say about Nazi soldiers, unfortunately, yeah. in terms of their pathology. I don't okay. know what I would say. Well, without getting into the Nazis, I will tell you that the um, they said it over. I think from the Belzerebbe that when Mishrayt Shabbos says Nishfazeh says Fazich, that when you when you're screaming Shabbos, it isn't really to stop them because you probably won't. And when you throw the stone, you probably aren't going to stop them either. But you're being machasik in yourself. The fact right. that you 
it really means a lot to you because look what you're willing to do for it. Now, that borders a little bit on a pathological statement, doesn't it? Because, in other words, you need you need to strengthen your own feeling of Shabbos, which might be weakened by seeing that other person driving. Because when you see that other person driving, it's telling you, hey, this isn't this utopia where everybody keeps Shabbos. The fact that that person's driving and enjoying himself and maybe a nice car and a beautiful woman with him and smoking, oh, that's a beautiful life. If I don't throw a stone at that, then it might be something that will tempt me. I don't know. I'm just this. I, I, I don't know if it's an armchair psychologist or a baby stool psychologist, but does that sound like it might fit into your construct? Well, yes. I would like to ratchet up that, that quote you gave the Belzerebbe, that not only are you being machazic at yourself, you're shouting at that part of yourself that might be tempted. You're shouting at your own, so to speak, yates or her, saying Shabbos. And in fact, I've seen in Beit Shemesh, which is a curious thing, um, guys who don't look like crazies at all, when the car goes by, they say Shabbos to themselves. Shabbos, you can barely hear them. They're not yelling Shabbos at the driver. The driver has his windows rolled up on rock music playing. But I hear them saying Shabbos. Shabbos, like they're reminding themselves to say, this is not how it should be. And what does that mean? They're talking to their own neshama, saying, no, this is not there. I don't want this to enter my consciousness. As far as I'm concerned, this is outside of me, not inside of me, which means that there is a chance that it is inside and you have to exercise it. And that's it's very telling. And again, it's nice to see the contrast between, between the people who really mean it and people who don't. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, they all mean it. Consciously, but those who mean it coming from genuine attempts to try to um, identify something or from attempts to stave off that temptation within themselves. And, and, when, and when it becomes something that, like, for example, I will tell you when I was a, um, uh, uh, I was 17, I guess, and I was on my way to San Henry Murchevet on Rechov Shmuanovi going down, and right there was a big spot that, um, Right before we got the down to San Hermann, which is down the hill, that is where stones, the highway wasn't built there yet, or the big road wasn't built there yet, but the cars that were driving by, there was Hebra throwing stones there. And I was sure. a friend of mine, and uh, a Taimani fellow, not not so religious fellow, a Taimani came over to me and said, like, maybe the person who's driving is a doctor. You know, in other words, he, he came over to me. He didn't go over to the stone throwers. But he said, I can't believe this is happening. Maybe they're throwing it at a doctor who's on his way to save someone's life. And that stone might might might, might cause the car to uh, become uh, completely dysfunctional and the person's life must be saved. And they were very, very, uh, it was they were so upset at what was, what was going on there. And again, it, it, it would seem that as you're saying, it's possible that when that occurs, then maybe that is going over the line and that does show some sort of illness, although maybe it, you just need better education, uh, as you're saying. Um, but, but, but go ahead. You were, you're, I interrupted you. You were going to illustrate this with something else. Go ahead. I just wanted to talk about one other aspect, which I think is quite um, um, meaningful in terms of the outbreaks of, let's say, violence that you see both in Israel and the United States these days. Like, And in, in many of the forensic psychologists in Israel are predicting that there will be some very marked violence here along the lines of trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan and putting her on trial and executing him. Some people are predicting that 
very strongly here for some of the um, politicians, and mostly the right one, but it doesn't matter. Now, it's, what's going on? I want to talk about something else, and that's a, a, a certain defense mechanism, which is paradoxical. It's called acting out. And it essentially means, um, okay, let, let me give you the background. <clears throat> we basically have feelings and we have behaviors, okay? Um, behaviors are usually indicative of some kind of underlying feeling. Um, what the ego sometimes does is it deals with an underlying feeling by totally repressing it, totally blocked from your own conscious. In other words, you're not aware of what it is. But what you do instead is you act out those feelings. But when you're acting out those feelings, you don't have the capacity to feel them, which is fine because it's the feelings that are threatening to you, not the acting out. So um, give you like a strong example, okay? This mother with a child, right? They're standing at a street corner. The child darts off, runs into traffic and almost gets killed, Okay. Somebody goes and plucks the child off right under a truck and gets her back to the mother. The mother is there. The mother starts uncontrollably beating the child to the point that there's a threat that she's going to hurt him very seriously. And the bypassers, the bystanders, have to stop her from hurting the child. Okay? What is going on there? What's going on? The mother, she's concerned about the child and reacts by hurting the child. Something doesn't make sense there. And um, when you look at it, basically, the mother was so upset with her feeling scared for the kid that she was unable to deal with that fear. It was making her very anxious, making her like terrified, and she deals with it by starting to act in a certain way. And while she's acting and plummeting the, pummeling the kid, she is blocking her ability to experience that fear. And many people on the, on the forensic slash political um, divide feel that much of the acting out that, that's going out over here, that's going on both here in the United States, is a way of dealing with this chronic anxiety and fear that we're beset upon. If you look at it rationally, it's a scary situation. At any one moment, you can go somewhere, you can get yourself infected with COVID, and you can die within the space of three, you know, three weeks. You're dead, okay? That is a very scary situation, okay? When you're busy um, threatening people, yelling people, calling people in the middle of the night that they're not the right kind of chassid or they're not the right kind of this or they're capitulating to Tzionim or to the rightists or to the Arabs or to the Palestinians, if you can busy yourself with that, your ego, I mean, your personality basically will not have to deal with the anxiety of what's facing you. So many people, at least in the armchair um, personality analysis business, feel that a lot of the spilling over of hate, anger, acting out, Black Lives Matters, anti-Hasidim, anti-Gerrers, I don't know, all these craziness that are coming up is a symptom of the spillover of anxiety, which we can no longer contain using our standard defenses, such as projection. Now, there are many others besides projection. So, Dr. Juni, what you are speaking about is not only a description of what has happened and what is happening now, but also, as we know, this era that we entered into earlier in the year, it doesn't seem like it's ending so quickly. So there, you're, it sounds like the, the map ahead is full with these possible outbreaks, these anxiety-driven outbreaks that will cause the acting out and cause this very violent negative behavior 
uh, behavior that, that, that in, in a way, uh, it, it confuses a lot of where society would like to go, uh, it gets us embroiled in, 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 in very negative things. Uh, so what I would say is, can you perhaps give uh, to everybody here, including myself, um, some sort of um, recipe for dealing with what's clearly going to be an anxiety-ridden future uh, that does, as you say, threaten the ego. Now, I know in my conversations with you in the past over a, a wide range of topics, you've been a very big chassid of the pharmacological, I don't know, the pharmacological uh, uh, approach, right? You are a big believer in what medication can do. And I know that Xanax is one of the most highly prescribed uh, medicines um, in in the world. Uh, and uh, uh, so would you say we need to get more of that in the pipeline in order to uh, bashtil the belt? Or is there some other, dis- some other thing that can be done here? Um, okay. All right. So I have to say that my Hasidus for anti-anxiety medication has not diminished through the years. Um, I just want to introduce two, two conceptual topics, and then I will talk to you about possible approaches uh, in terms of remediation or at least mitigation of what's going on here. Um, we talked about projection as one major defense, which can explain a lot of this acting out. Um, there, there are basically two other defenses I want to talk about. One of them, I mean, is basically called, it's the mother of all defenses, and it's called repression. It's a murder trick of the ego to actually block out certain feelings and make you literally forget about them. And I say forget, I don't mean that you don't think about it. You won't even recognize them when somebody approaches you with it and they have to work really hard to evoke it within you. So in other words, before you start dealing with defenses that involve acting out, which is essentially a breakdown of sorts, and that was the defensive structure is no longer working well, you have to get involved in actions like acting out, vilifying people, hurting people, that means that you're intrapsychic. In other words, the inside defense mechanism not working well. When it does work well, we have bona fide repression, which means you forget and you medicate it, which is full in the muscles form. Be mavater, right? Let it go. Yes, you can let it go. The real way you let it go is by convincing yourself, untruthfully, by the way, that it doesn't bother you, because it does bother you. But you manage to use shtick, and the ego is a great shtick master, the biggest magician around, to convince yourself it's fine, and then you let go. You're Michael, you're fine, even though underneath, you just need to tickle the person the right way, and it'll come out again. But if you don't tickle them, and if COVID doesn't come around, if something crazy doesn't come around, they will live their life feeling that they really have, harbor no ill feelings to the other, they're fine. And that's a very good defense mechanism that usually works. Um, there's another defense mechanism which is a little bit dangerous, and that's called blaming yourself, which is very common. And now, if something is wrong out there, what you do is say, Magiali, it's my fault, I'm the scoundrel, and that's why things are miserable, and I'm accepting all the blame, which is also very functional in terms that you don't end up acting out towards somebody else. You're able to get along with people rather than being a constant, a vigilant person to keep looking for others they're doing to you. But your self-esteem suffers 
as a result, okay? And sometimes people actually end up hurting themselves as a process when it really becomes a, a significant psychiatric issue. But there are other ways around them blaming other people or acting out and protesting and being a vigilante and throwing rocks and burning masks. There are other ways to deal with it, but each one has its own payoff and its own negative payoff. Well, I think when Corona first erupted, uh, when people thought they could lasso it and understand it, there were attempts by various Rosh Hashivas and Rabbanim to use the second approach to say that since everything is Bishvil Yisrael, everything happens because of us, mm-hmm. it must be that the corona was unleashed because of something we've done. Because sure. we showed my, my good friend Rabbi Bechopper that I do the program with and you listened to recently, uh, he suggested that it was the Sinas Chinam that we have for others that now shut down our Komas Torah. Uh, you've seen other things that and, and that that did go on for a while, and and, and there were these the musr that was going on, not the musr that I, it doesn't make a difference, but we deserve it, and we're going to be macabre the onish. And, and I don't know. You're saying that there there might be a long. But I, but I think it was it was carried to an extreme. I've heard the Hill of Shabbos. I've heard the Sinas Chinam. The most beautiful um, response to this I heard was from the Kwesan Barab and Natanya. He got up and said this was a speech that was broadcast everywhere. This is not an onesh to anybody. It's not because of something we've done. I'm not saying what the reason is, but don't do this because people were flagellating themselves and mamish getting depressed to the point of going half suicidal and said, no, we're not blaming our, we don't know what the drachim of Hashem are, but this is not a punishment. And that's not the smartest thing I ever heard from the Klesim Gorev. I said, you know, did not know him too well, but I said, well, I mean, I grew up with him as a kid, so I didn't, you know, never saw him as a functioning adult. I last saw him when I was eight years old. But, you know, it was very nicely put. Don't do this. You know, and I've heard the same response towards um, people, of course, blame the Tiyanim for everything. There, come on, stop it. You know, that's not what's going on. Okay, so... When you do that, you run the danger, especially when you're in a marked, a markedly negative situation, that you're going to take that and start acting out against yourself and become non-functional, and there goes your family, there goes your ability to be a parent, it's, it gets pretty dangerous. But let me just talk about, about, uh, about possible approaches here. So um, there is a, a lot of the anxiety around COVID is being fueled by misinformation. In other words, um, first of all, even verifying the facts officially has not been doing too well, even from in terms of, of a government or a health agency's perspective. But the Typical um, layman on the street has both overinflated uh, sense of danger statistically and also misinformation in terms of what they may do to stop themselves from getting it. Okay? In other words, if you ask someone, what are the chances of any one person, of you, Mr. X, getting sick enough to become hospitalized? Okay? They have the wrong information that's vastly overinflated. The chances are very, very low. People get swayed by anecdotes. It's somebody they knew who has a cousin or a brother in Ashdod, somebody they know in Brooklyn, somebody they know in, in Lakewood, but the numbers are really small. So if you just get educated about the facts, the anxiety dies down some. There's no question about that. Um, so misinformation is an important aspect. Getting informed about the fact at least gives you some mastery. Getting informed about what you can do to prevent, not just mask wearing. Mask wearing is a significant dent against the chances of getting uh, COVID and a significant dent against an anxiety reaction. 
because it's realistic. You can say wearing a mask reduces your chances to whatever it is. You can look up the numbers, but your chances to begin with are not as high as you think they are. So that's kind of helpful. But yes, I would say anti-anxiety, especially PRN. I don't know if I would say, you know, take it steadily, but PRN is phenomenal. When you feel you're getting overwhelmed, that's why anti-anxiety, that's why God gave us anti-anxieties. <laughs> well, that's where the medication comes from. It works very well. It works very well. The issue is, you know, what I would tell people is that um, just like you tell people, let's say, after you break up with someone with a romantic relationship, give it a couple of months. Don't jump into something. I would say by the same token, don't jump into any kind of existential conclusions when you're in this kind of crisis situation. And this is a crisis, even though it's lasting many months, it is a crisis. And also don't make any life changing decisions and say, therefore, I'm going to become a breast lover. Therefore, I'm going to, you know, make a nether and not drink any wine and not smoke, whatever it is. Don't do that. But don't be macabre to learn 16 blood of the murder a day. You can't do this now. Okay? Let it ease down. Become non-anxious at first. Inform yourself about the facts. And yes, t- if take some anti-anxieties. Any GP will prescribe it to you these days. Oh, you I, have to t- I have to tell you, they've become very strict. Um, and I speak from personal knowledge here. They are very strict about um, uh, Xanax and other drugs like that. Um, they, uh, You can only... You need to see your GP every three months. Uh, oh, sure. Oh, that's true. That's true. Regardless, you should never take a any kind of psychotropic medication without having regular follow-ups. Because first of all, you need to titrate, which means that the um, um, the effectiveness of the medication can either be over. Uh, um, exaggerated or under-exaggerated. And second of all, there are side effects always. So these have to be monitored. So I think if they're doing that now, it's good. It's about time. You should never just take an ongoing pill for any kind of um, um, psychiatric uh, difficulty and not re- and not have it t- t- totally monitored. So that's fine. But that doesn't... Uh, that's not disturbing at all. But with all that, a GP will prescribe it. They will prescribe a certain number of pills and say, if you feel that it's not working, check back. So that's, I, I'm a total proponent of that. And it doesn't mean that you are the an anxiety patient. It means that in a crisis situation, you become anxious, which means you're a human being. And that's fine. Well, I, I will tell you, as someone who has been taking Xanax for the last 20 years, since my father passed away, I think... And, and my wife has said this as well, that she has seen uh, some changes uh, that you need to realize. And I've seen it myself. And again, I'm being honest here to people that might be listening, that as someone who takes this, I saw like a little drop off in, in many um, aspects of, of my ability to actually analyze things and be able to pursue things. In other words, before I, before I've been taking since 2000, so I'm a 20-year vet of anti-anxiety medication. I would say 20 years ago, before I started, I thought I was much more ruthless in pursuing uh, things I was researching. I, I felt that I was, uh, again, part of it was physically becoming more tired. So there are side effects, which, which, is, which is, I think people have to be aware of, and I'm willing to be personal about it and say it. I don't think, you know, in other words, I could even say that I, I think that there are certain heights that I probably could have reached had I not been on those drugs. But I think the drugs helped me deal with a lot of personal crisis and difficulty that, was, that I was going through. Okay, so, so first of all, so I want to commend you 
for having the guts to come forward like this because you are unlike thousands and thousands of people that I know who are, and I know them as groups who are on medication and will not share it simply because of stigma or whatever, which is ridiculous. It's like the people who have a stigma about having a certain illness or having high blood pressure. It doesn't make sense. And of course, these days, COVID is like the biggest stigma in certain communities. You don't admit to it no matter what. Okay. But also what I have to just comment, which has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but I just see a an opportunity to get on the soapbox here. And that is that what you are bemoaning, the fact that you don't have a, um, a certain kind of, um, shall we say, impulsive sharpness to attack, a, to attack a problem that you're more slowed down, that that's not necessarily a negative because most often, except for, let's say, the uh, brilliant eureka moments that Archimedes had or, let's say, uh, Einstein had or Niels Bohr had, most of those impulsive um, ideas that people come up with are junk. So in other words, by slowing down a bit, saying, and I remember having a Havrus like that for me, Sam, slow down a minute. You're going too fast. And by slowing down, I would sometimes realize that I skipped over something simply because I was going for the big cherry on top. So I don't necessarily see that unless you're someone who comes up with these um, brilliant, um, you know, um, paradigmatic changes, you know, whenever you have this uh, way of analyzing things, I would say, don't necessarily lament what you've lost here. Maybe you've lost something that it was worthwhile losing because Possibly. now you're Possibly. more dated, more meyushadik, and yes, less prone to flying off the handle. Okay, so you're no longer a freaking genius, just stomach genius. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I was hoping to be able in the Torah world to produce something similar to the groundbreaking uh, essays and monographs of Sam Juni in these areas like, like, okay. like, like Sam Juni was able to do in his 30s and 40s his fifties. Uh, so again, it's, it's, it's a nice excuse to fall back on your meds of somehow, uh, causing, but again, right. I, I think that, you know, definitely for a temporary fix. And I think people need to realize the meds are addictive and, and it is, it is hard to get off them, to get off the anti, which is why I'm saying they will generally not prescribe something to take every night. They will prescribe it PRN, which means when you feel anxious, take it. Okay. And then, of course, when you run out the number of pills that they prescribe to you, you have to go back and make a din v'cheshm. <laughs> and then despite your excuses, they'll say, nah, I'm not renewing it again. What do you say to that? Okay, so, all right. I, I, so I'll tell you what I have said. I've said I'm getting another doctor, which is what I did. Yes, that, that works very well. That works well. I'm just I just need to find another opinion. doctor that can hear my story, and he'll, he'll write the script. Okay. So Israel is good that way. Israel is socialized medicine, so no matter who you get, as soon as they punch in your ID number, they know your exact history. So it doesn't work here, unfortunately. Well, I know I can't get them from you, Doc. I know I can't get them from you, but, I, yeah. but maybe I can that's, get them. I can get them. I can, I can get the which can maybe calm me down. And that's it, my friends. Hopefully, you have gained some perspective in this uh, wild, chaotic world that 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 is, is, is all around us and an understanding of how perhaps what's really going on within you and going on to the people around you. We'll take you, we'll see you again, Dr. Juni, hopefully next week on the other side. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.